Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Delighted to open God's Word to Jeremiah 29. Uh, if you have a phone and would like to share what is about to be communicated, you may have a friend, a neighbor, a loved one, a relative who needs to hear some encouragement right now in the middle of the times that all of us are going through. Uh, I think, as best I understand what I think the Lord wants to say to us today, this would definitely be the day. And welcome as well to all of you who are joining us from home. Here's what I want to talk about today. Next week we get into the Blessed series where we're going to move verse by verse through what are called the Beatitudes. Jesus is going to teach us that there is a, a state of being called blessedness that is not dependent on your circumstances or whether or not there's a pandemic or a vaccine or how your 401k is doing. And I cannot wait to begin that series. It's going to take us all the way up until Christmas. But before we get there, I think the Lord has one more word for us. Uh, as it, it kind of capitalizes off of last week. How do we have hope in an election year? I hope that you heard that. I hope that you understand the Lord wants to give us hope in the middle of all the toxicity that we are experiencing. But part of the way he gives his people hope is he gives them a mission. What is that mission? Here's the big idea. What now? This has been a year of incredible hardship. It's been a year of interruption. Some of you have faced sickness. Some of you have seen your loved ones pass away from this virus. Some of you have suffered financial loss or even the loss of a business. You've suffered in some other way. Some of you are members of our, our minority community in the middle of everything else that's going on. You, you now saw many of your own kind of underneath the wheels of the very justice that was supposed to protect them. Some of you are law enforcement officers who put on a badge and strap on a gun because you believe in bringing true justice and serving and protecting and this current environment has made your job all but impossible and you're wondering how am I going to endure through this and of course all of that in a toxic political environment that we talked about last week. And some of this has trickled its way into your families. And there's no way to escape this. You know, you can't get like, if this were just a hurricane or a tornado, have you thought about that? You could say, I'm going to South Florida. And my wife just said, amen. Because she loves her some South Florida, right? I'm going to get on an airplane and we'll go to South Florida. You know what you're going to find when you go to South Florida? Mask mandates, social distancing signs, probably going to be the first thing to greet you at the airport. You can't escape this. There's nowhere in the world that you can go to fully and finally get away from everything we've talked about. We now live in a whole new world. Now, I, I believe what I said at the outset of this. I don't think this is going to last forever, but it's obviously lasted a lot longer than any of us thought. And, and here's the warning I want to send you. The greatest temptation for a follower of Jesus in a moment of crisis is to do two things simultaneously. Number one, to become complacent about things that ought to be urgent. And conversely, to develop a false sense of urgency about all kinds of things that don't matter. So one of the things that the prophet Jeremiah is going to do for us is the same thing he did for the Israelites back in the 6th century BC. And that is, he's going to reorder our priorities for us. 
He's going to help us reset a deck that has been hopelessly shuffled. And I'm looking forward to, to, to doing that with you. Because, because God's people in Jeremiah's day also found themselves in a moment of inescapable crisis. Let me back up just a little bit and give you something of the historical context so that you, so that you really fully understand what it is that he's trying to say both to, to the people of Israel in his own day as well as to you and me through the word of the Lord. And we're going to begin with the end of Solomon's reign. A, a number of you probably, in fact, how many of you were here and part of the covenant family two years ago when I preached verse by verse through Ecclesiastes? You remember that? Yep, yep, several of you still apart. Thanks for coming back, by the way. Um, the Ecclesiastes, as I said, is, it's kind of the diary of an old man who's looking back on a wasted life, wasted opportunity. And of course, part of the consequences of Solomon's own sin and wasted life was the breakup of his own kingdom, a kingdom that under his father David had grown to, into what historians still call their, the first golden age of Israel. And through Solomon's two successors, you had Jeroboam and Rehoboam, you have a, a split of the kingdom. You have two nations emerging out of one, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so for the next 350 years, God's people would live with their own self-imposed 38th parallel. And throughout those three centuries, we witnessed a succession of rulers on both sides, most of whom were wicked. We know that in, in a number of ways, but primarily because rather than teaching their people to trust in the Lord, they were trusting in shrewdness and alliances with foreign nations. They were setting up uh, altars to other gods in, in high places. They marginalized God's true prophets. They assembled their own sort of religious advisory council of people who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And, and as is usually the case when you have leaders of character like that who, who come and go right after each other, each of these respective kingdoms begin to decline. The north went first in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian army invaded. And it is in between that moment and a moment that would come for the southern kingdom 135 years later. So there's a 135-year period of history here is when Jeremiah emerges. Now, Jeremiah starts his prophetic ministry in 627 B.C. He's somewhere between 12 and 13 years of age. So he's just a, a few months older than my youngest daughter. When he begins this prophetic ministry, and he will preach during the reigns of Judah's last five kings for the next 40 years. Uh, and when he gets done, things aren't better. Yeah, you ever had a job like that that was frustrating? Maybe someone spent several weeks on the job? How about this? How about you have the same job for your entire career? The first day that you clock in, you're not even shaving yet. The last day that you clock out, AARP is sending you stuff in the mail, and you look around at four-plus decades of work, and you realize not only is it not getting better, it looks like it's actually far worse. That's Jeremiah. That was his job. Anybody want that job? You're like, well, 2020's kind of felt like 40 years. Yeah, I know. I know. But this is where the prophet finds himself. And so Jeremiah 29, the passage Pastor Jeff read for us at the outset together, is addressed to the final years of Judah's final king. It's a man named Zedekiah. He's basically a puppet. He was installed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He spent about 10 years in sitting in that seat on that throne uh, over that 10-year period, Babylon just invades and they take what they want, including human resources. That's code for slaves. 
They began to take them and exile them back to Babylon for the use of, of their own kingdom. And Zedekiah, finally, through just a, a horrible, foolish, strategic decision that caused the most memorable disaster in Jewish history at this period, around 587 B.C., because of his foolishness, Nebuchadnezzar removes him from the throne, forces him to watch his two sons be executed right in front of him just before his own two eyes are put out. He is permanently blinded, and then he is led along with yet another band of soon-to-be slaves back to Babylon, this time leaving a completely destroyed Jerusalem behind them. These are dark days. I mean, you and I, we, we only think, I know it's been tough. I'm not trying to minimize what anybody in this room or, or, or in your living room is going through right now, but I'm telling you, we only think we're going through darkness when we compare ourselves to where the Jews were at this period in history. Dark days. Meanwhile, back in Babylon, you have a group of slaves that have been there for a while, and they're gathering by the Euphrates River trying to comfort themselves, and they're, in look for, they're in, 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 on the search for hope. Anybody looking for hope today? They're looking for it. Now, here's the thing. You can look for it and find the real thing, or you can get so short-sighted, you start listening to things you want to hear. In our modern day, we call that confirmation bias. And the Jews found it in a prophet named Hananiah. Look at Jeremiah 28, beginning in verse 2. This was Hananiah's message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Sounds official, doesn't it? I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from his place and carried to Babylon. Sounds great. Two years tops. We're going to be done. Temple's going to be there. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get your instruments back. Hey, guys, just hunker down. This will be over soon. And it pushes the Jews toward a couple of postures. Number one, a posture of denial. This really isn't all that bad. And secondly, a posture of isolation. Isolation. We're not going to be here very long anyway, so let's just keep to ourselves. Let's just hunker down until normal comes back. Does that sound familiar? Let's just hunker down. All right, I, I told you, the greatest temptation in a moment of crisis is to be complacent when you should be urgent and to be urgent when really things don't matter. Let me tell you what the greatest sin is for a follower of Jesus in crisis. It is when you hunker down and you say, no more obedience, no more forward vision, no more sense of the kingdom until I get my normal back. We got to watch that. Jeremiah is about to rearrange the deck for us. And the overriding principle we see here is this. God's people, no matter where or when we find ourselves, have one focus. This way, keep your eye on the ball. All right? Don't be fighting with each other. Don't be fighting with the media. Don't be drug into all kinds of Facebook, Twitter nonsense. Keep your eye on the ball because no matter where I am, where you are, where God has placed us, we are never to keep the kingdom to ourselves. That's the message. So what now? Well, let me tell you three things. And, and interestingly enough, these things haven't changed since Jeremiah's time. Three ways that we're supposed to answer the question, what now? Number one, live in the times where God has placed you. Live in the times where God has placed you. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all the exiles, watch these next words, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, that's a double shock, especially to God's people, because they were living uh, under a delusion, the first of which is God would never cause us to go through hardship. The prosperity gospel, as it turns out, is just as heretical then as it is now, and it is not, you know, it, it doesn't die. It just goes to hell and regroups and comes back in a better suit with a better haircut. That's pretty much what it does. God would never want his people to suffer. God would never do it. Well, that, that's kind of what, what Jeremiah's time, the, the Israelites fell into that trap. And, and chief among that was the presence of the temple. We have the temple. God would never destroy his temple. He would never do it. Never would God do something like that. And so guess what God does? He uses the enemies of Israel to destroy the temple that they built for him, to teach them a couple of things, all right? Here's the first one, and it's going to sting a little bit. I haven't lived there for years because you're sexually immoral, you trample the rights of the poor, you don't care about your neighbor, you're always looking out for yourself. In other words, you're acting just like the godless pagans around you, and you think what separates you from them is a building? How about I knock that sucker down? Here's the second thing he's teaching them. I don't need a temple to be with you. Isn't it amazing? The perfection of the fatherhood of God that he knows exactly when to swipe our bottom and simultaneously give us a hug. He knows exactly how to discipline. I am everywhere. I can't be contained in a temple, but I did not just lead you to this place to teach you that. You need to know I'm with you here. I'm with you here. Let me ask you a question. If you could go back to normal, if you could hit the rewind button, go back to January, Whatever it is you've lost, whatever it is you've suffered, whatever experiences, what, all those times your blood pressure went up, all those times, that it, whatever kinds of, I mean, I know it, it's a, it's a lot of grief, it's a lot of anger, it's a lot of anguish, and people are going through a lot right now. If you could go back to before then, you only got to do one thing. You, you got to take out the presence. You can have everything you had back then except the presence of God. Would you take that deal? Or would you rather have the presence of God where you are? Brothers and sisters, the way you answer that question tells a lot about who you worship. I brought you here. I am with you here. See, what the Jews discovered was they developed a more intimate connection with the Lord on the banks of the Euphrates River than they had ever had with him within the strict confines of their little box of temple Worship And this theme, by the way, of God's sovereign providence over all the affairs of men, it's described more fully in the New Testament. Paul says the following, speaking to philosophers on Mars Hill, and he made from one man every nation, and nation there doesn't refer to nation states or bodies of law. It's talking about it's the word ethnos. We get our word ethnicity from it. It, it really is it, the way we typically use the word race is, is what it means. Different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages to live on all the face of the earth 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God decided when I was be bo to be born. God's already decided when I'm going to die. God decided the confines of my raising, my education, everything about my life. God has determined that and he has done it for one singular purpose that they should seek God in the hope that they may find, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him, sovereignty continues, in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. God sovereignly controls everything. Brothers and sisters, there's not one blade of grass that dies on Joel Rainey's backyard lawn. There is not one single bird in the far reaches of the Amazon forest that falls off a tree unless a sovereign God permits it to happen. Now that brings us up to a really hard underbelly. Listen, when we're talking about COVID-19, we're talking about God's virus. Amen. It's his. It's his. Maybe instead of getting mad at each other, we ought to be afraid. You're living in fear. You know, sometimes it's okay to live in fear. God, we've lost some of that along the way. The Lord wants us sometimes to be afraid so that we run to him. So that we come to him. And this is the same God who speaks to these captive Israelites. See, that, that's the temptation, isn't it? I got to long for a, another scenario. And by the way, it's okay to want to go back to normal. That, that makes you normal, yeah. It's, it's fine. There'd be something wrong with you if you had some kind of persecution complex and you were like, oh, this is great, I'm so excited. Well, then there's something wrong with you, okay? It is not okay to be obsessed with normal. It is not okay to just put full stop on your life until you get back everything you lost or until everything goes back the way you would prefer it or to spend all of your time longing for last January or December or next June or whenever they say the vaccine's gonna come out, all right? It is wrong to obsess because what you're gonna miss is what God has for you in this moment. You see, the Jews are not the only generation that ever learned this lesson that that man the closest the most intimate i am with god oftentimes comes simultaneous with the moments of my greatest suffering generation after generation after generation of godly men and women have experienced that and have testified to it which by the way is why the the cost of discipleship as a class is important i've had people ask me why don't we just study the bible why would we why would we study any part of church history well if for no other reason than there was this long line of godly men and women between jesus and your grandmother and what they thought mattered and it actually influences you more than you think that's why we look at these things so that that great cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews describes as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and we begin to see how to live in times like these. And God would say to us right now, listen, there's a lot of things that you could blame for where you are, for where our nation is, for where our world is. Here's the thing that you need to know above and beyond. I'm not even negating some of those things that you may believe. But above and beyond everything else, this is the big picture. I have brought you here. Don't contend with me about where I stick you. I made you. I own you. I will put you wherever I please. And then here's the great news. I love you. And I'm trying to get you out of this nonsense so that you can know me. 
perhaps better and more closely than you ever had before. Our church is there. God has brought us here. See, we've all dealt with some of this. By the end of January, I I mean, I'm a pastor, right? So I, I have... I have things that I like and things that I don't like as a pastor. I would much rather preach to a full room than to a half full room. That's just just us, right? And and as pastors, we can take that to a very unhealthy place where it becomes all about the numbers. But but there is something natural about just loving God's people, wanting to see them. There is something heartbreaking about knowing that so many of you are still at home. And for many of you who are there, it's because you believe you have to be. And so you don't need to hear any condemnation from me, but, but I'll tell you, we, we had one of those moments, Pastor Dave and I did, because at the end of January, we did the math, and we had actually, because of several things that we'd done, several adjustments that we'd made, do you know this church grew by 21% in a month, just in terms of our attendance? And then COVID hit. What's a pastor supposed to do? Well, maybe one thing I'm supposed to do is remember that it's really not about the percentages. It's really not about how many seats are empty and how many are filled. To be a pastor and a shepherd to God's people may not be less than that, but it is, it is so exponentially more than that. If I had to choose, would I go back to January? I, you know what? A couple of months ago, I don't know how I would have answered that question, but I can tell you right now, the Lord's been working on my heart through this and other, other texts of Scripture. No, I would not go back to January because I think there's something And listen to me carefully. It ain't just on the other side of this. There's something right now that God has for us. Don't miss it. But in order to not miss it, you got to live in the times where God has placed you. See, your, your argument's not with the government. It's not with the Republicans or Democrats. It's not with your fellow brothers and sisters here in the church. If you don't like where you are right now to the point that you're getting mad, your issue is with the sovereign God. So here's the thing you do. Live in the times where God has put you. Secondly, live with the neighbors God has given you. Now this is going to get a little tougher, but look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. That's another shocking message. Because again, let's look at Hananiah's message. Chapter 28, verse 3. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, right? I mean, that's more pleasant, right? You know, just hunker down and wait. You don't have to do anything hard. The Lord's going to take care of this. And in fact, in less than two years, this is going to happen. This was not the first time, nor will it be the last, in which God's people are offered an alternative message. In fact, centuries later, the early church apparently faces a similar situation. Look at what Paul warns Timothy about. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They don't want to hear about a sovereign God. That includes your preacher, by the way. Ask my wife the number of times I've griped and complained about something that she has gently reminded me that God is sovereign and he loves us and he has us here for a purpose. And I'm like, don't you preach to me what I preach to other people. Don't you do it. That's, but that's where we are, right? They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In that moment, Rainy, you better listen to your wife instead of going trying to listen to some other crap that I have not said. 
In every generation, God's people have to make a choice between what they want to hear and what God is actually saying. So Jeremiah responds. Look at verses 8 and 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Someone years ago told me, he said, Pastor, I love you, but when you call out certain theologies, certain things as false, and tell God's people stay away from it, that just strikes me as hypercritical. I hate that. And my response was, well, I, I can understand that, but you know what I hate? I hate it when religious quacks disguised as legitimate preachers of the gospel lead people to hell. That's what I hate. And Jeremiah apparently does as well. He, he doesn't mince words, does he? They're liars. They're lying to you. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So one prophet scratches itching ears. The other one tells the truth. And here's the truth. Build houses, plant gardens. Now, this is an agricultural environment, so let me, let me share with you what this really means. Get a job and get a mortgage because you're going to be here a while. I know Hananiah told you that two years and you're out and you can just rent and don't even worry about getting your kids placed in a good school. I'm telling you, get a house, get a mortgage, start thinking about how your kids are gonna, who your kids are going to marry and what your grandkids are going to be like because that's how freaking long you're going to be here. I have put you here and I'm going to keep you here. How long? Well, verse 10 says 70 years. Now that's that's roughly a lifetime even today when you think about it. Because the average span, by the way, of a U.S. citizen, the average lifespan of a citizen of the United States, you know what it is? 79.8 years. All right, we are, in terms of longevity of all of the industrialized nations of the world, we are 42nd out of 195 countries. And I know that puzzles some of you. You're like, wait a minute, we're the United States. Like, we're the wealthiest? We're, the, we're 42nd? That may have something to do with how much bacon we eat. I don't know. Number one in that list is the kingdom of Monaco. A citizen, a subject of Monaco will live on average 89.52 years. Let's stretch it out a little bit longer than that. My oldest son, who just turned 20 back in April, his generation, Gen Z, are expected to live on average, because of further advances we're anticipating in medical technology, 102 years. But even with that, if you moved to Babylon as an adult, you would likely not live to come back home, would you? You wouldn't. Now, let me complicate it further. Because in the first century, I actually researched and researched. I could not find any reliable data that told me what the life expectancy was in Jeremiah's time. The closest I could find was 600 years after Jeremiah with whatever medical advance they had experienced. The first century average lifespan in the place and the time was 38 to 50 years. So when Jeremiah in verse 10 says what he says, he's saying, this is your new life. For the overwhelming majority of you, you're not coming home. Build homes, take wives, don't wait to return. Give your sons and daughters in marriage, have grandchildren. Now, why would he do that? Because somewhere along the way, God's people lost the vision for who he intended his people Israel to be. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. What does he say to the very first member of this nation? He said to Abraham, "You in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when Jeremiah says what he says, you know what he's reminding God's people Israel? He's saying when God said that, he meant it. 
Not that you would keep that to yourselves. And so he is now going to place you sovereignly among people who are not like you so that you will bless them. And by the way, that mandate has not changed even for those of us who live under the new covenant. Look at 1 Timothy 2. Paul's instruction to the church is as follows, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't forget what's most important. And it's really, really simple. We love to overcomplicate things, don't we? The Western Evangelical Church, pre-COVID, could overcomplicate a two-car parade. We really could. How do we reach this person? I mean, with all of our innovations and programs and money and education, every reliable statistic on the Western church was telling us even then that we weren't even keeping our own children. And that most of the churches that were growing were not making disciples. They were just putting a better weekend Vegas show on, which means they were pulling sheep from other, other places. Here's the plan. You ready for this? This is simple. Live in the times where God's put you. Reckon that God's put me here. Knowing that, live among people who don't believe like you. Work hard. Live a quiet, godly life. Raise your children to do the same. Marry them off to other kids who have been raised in the same way so that your grandchildren carry on the faith. And the mere presence of that dynamic among your neighbors makes you different and it makes them want to be different. You do not need a new fresh strategy. And brother, sister, I love you, but you do not need your normal back to do that. Live in the times where God has placed you. Live among the neighbors where God has put you. Finally, love with the gospel that God has instilled in you. Look at verse 7. Now, if you, the biggest cure to anxiety is to get it off of yourself, right? Everything I've lost, everything I'm losing, everything I'm worried about. I mean, what, what's the answer to that? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. I put you here and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Here's the reason. Watch this. For in its welfare, you will find yours. To a people who wanted to isolate themselves, probably start Christian clubs and have it, let's just be completely, let's start this whole bubble thing and separate ourselves from people that are hurting and people that are dying and people that are without the gospel. To people that just wanted to kind of push through until they could get back to normal. God said, guess what? You can't do that. I have put you, sovereignly placed you in a catch-22, and I have tied your welfare inextricably to your neighbors so that you will seek their welfare, so that you will love them the way I love them. And the word welfare here, by the way, you know what the Hebrew word for this is? Shalom. Does that sound familiar? It's the Hebrew word for peace. And it means prosperity, completeness, safety, wholeness, health, Think about what, what God is saying. He's saying to the Jews, I want you to seek those things for people who have enslaved you. I want you to pray to Yahweh on behalf of a place that rejects him. I want you to do it on behalf of a people who will not too far from this moment throw one of your own to the lions and three more into the fiery furnace. And by the way, 600 years later, Jesus would echo that when he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because I, the Lord, have put you here. Your welfare is dependent upon theirs. Church, 
God means for us. I, I think about the fact of how God has just worked in our life. There's no reason. I've said this before. There is no reason Covenant Church should still be here. No reason. Not, not from a human standpoint anyway. None. None. God has brought us to this place at this time, having spared us, having forgiven us, having been compassionate to us, having used us, and he's still doing it, but he's got a reason behind it. God, God doesn't spare churches like ours. He doesn't spare any church for no reason. He means for us to be a blessing and not a liability to our community. He means for us to seek the welfare. And so he says, All right, I'm, I'm going to make it so that you can't untangle the knot between you and your city. So we need a posture check when it comes to our interaction with wider culture. We don't always agree, of course. I'm not saying we ought to always capitulate. And yes, sometimes we're going to have to face some things that are antithetical to our faith. But we too often in this modern age react as though that's all we're supposed to see. Can you imagine if the exiles had acted the way so many Christians act in the Western world? What the difference would have been? We're supposed to be more than just a fly in the ointment. Live in the times recognizing God has placed us here. Carl Menninger put it this way to someone who was so depressed they were at the point of suicide once, the famed psychiatrist. He wrote a book many, many years ago called Whatever Became of Sin. Carl Menninger said, here's, here's at least part of the answer to your depression. Lock the door behind you. Go across the street. Find someone in need and do something to help them with their problem. So you can fuss and fight with each other on social media or you can get to work bringing glimpses of the kingdom of God by looking first not at yourself but looking out for the interests of others. And I say again, what, what other possible explanation could there be that we and are still here other than God has great plans for us? That's all of us. You don't deserve to be sitting in those seats right now. All the discussion we've been having in this country about my right to worship, you, before Almighty, listen, I understand there's a civic argument needs to be made and we should make it, but I think somewhere along the line we have gotten so focused on rights that really haven't been taken away. We forgot that before the Lord our God, we have no right to worship. None. You shouldn't be sitting there. I should not be standing here. I should be a greasy spot. That's what we deserve. God has been gracious to us to bring us here. Don't get distracted. Because I think that's what the Lord's telling us. My plans for your hopeful future follow one path. That, those, those nearly 14,000 people that we fed over the last few months, they see that in us. They see that in us. Every time you put aside your own preferences for the sake of someone else in your church family, they see that in you. Every time you do it out in the community, they see that in you. Every time you behave differently, you know how much grief police officers have taken over the last few months? When you show them respect that no one else shows, you know how much grief Walmart cashiers have had to deal with in the last few months? 
when you treat them differently and with the respect that God intends, when you seek the welfare of the other person, something happens. They see a glimpse of the kingdom and you get fuller of it. That's what we do right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people and I mean it when I say that the potential not just for modeling national unity, but Lord, for, for being a people of the kingdom, for being a people whose message is so radically different that it is shocking. And Lord, you said so much on that mountainside years ago about the state of being that's required to live in precisely the way that we've just heard from the prophet Jeremiah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when people revile you and say all kinds of evil about you on my account. Blessed. And Lord, in the, in the coming weeks, may we embody that. May your spirit empower us to embody that. And may it begin today as we allow you through your prophet, through your servant Jeremiah, to reshuffle the deck, to, to put the, the right order of things back into place, that we would be urgent about the things that are actually urgent and that the difference would be seen by the people around us, by the region, by the world. Thank you for this church, Father. Break our hearts for this community and this world. Break our hearts for so often, having questioned your will, submit us to that and use us in more powerful ways than we ever thought possible. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.